0: I am a huge fan of resistance training for athletes, not only to improve performance, but also to help reduce the risk of injury. Look, you will never prevent injury. And any systems or any little marketing gimmicks that say how it'll prevent injury are full of crap. You can't prevent it, but you can reduce the risk. And that's ultimately our goal.
1: You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyberg, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential.
2: Dr. Emily Kybert here. We are joined by Dr. Sean Arendt, PhD and professor of kinesiology at Rutgers University and the director of the Rutgers Center for Health and Human Performance. He is the current president of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. In 2017, he received the outstanding Sports Scientist of the Year Award for the National Strength and Conditioning Association. This guy is super knowledgeable. We dive deep into how to use biomarkers and performance markers to keep athletes at their peak and how to prescribe the best training and nutrition regimen possible, which supplements are best for the athletes, and how the research, you know we love that, supports the data. This guy who blew my mind. Enjoy.
1: Sean, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your new position as president, kind of what you're up to. You also run the Center for Human Performance at Rutgers, just to name a few. Yeah,
0: So I try to stay busy. It keeps me off the streets. But no, I am a professor at Rutgers University in the Department of Kinesiology and Health. And then I'm also the director of the Rutgers Center for Health and Human Performance and the director of our graduate program as well. Last year, I was elected president of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. So I'm enjoying that process and continuing to help move that organization forward as sort of a preeminent sport nutrition entity to be able to contribute to the field in a meaningful way. So those are some of the things we do in addition to the teams and athletes that I work with closely at Rutgers and with some of the pro teams that I've worked with in the past.
1: That's amazing. I'd love to circle back around to the athletes, but what I'd really love to do is I'd love to start and talk a little bit about nutrition and kind of the next emerging things in exercise physiology, because there's always something new coming out. So, what are some of the trends that you're seeing and and seeing implemented?
0: You know, it's interesting. I would say one of the challenges that we have right now is when it comes to sort of nutrition and exercise physiology in particular, and, and really, in that sort of world sport nutrition was really birthed from exercise physiology more so than it even was nutrition just because of the bioenergetic demands and things like that but i think increasingly there's been this interesting sort of difference in thought process with some of the areas of research that revolve more around like physique and and even just fat loss and those that revolve around performance and maybe optimizing health and i've noticed that on the physique and body comp side, there's very much this trend of what's the least we have to do. And on the performance side, there's what's the most we can get away with to try to get something out of this. And so, you know, I think that in that sense, trying to rectify some of those things and bridge them and bring them together is I think one of the the future directions that we're going to see. Obviously, protein has been a a huge topic of points of discussion and debate. How much do we need? How much do you use and things like that? And, And I think that that's Advanced pretty well, and I think sometimes it's taken a bit out of context, and we ignore sort of the interactions when you're dealing with with somebody who is a hard trainer, whether it's an athlete or or somebody who is athletic in the way they go about training. And I think that trying to optimize these things becomes a fairly critical part of what we're doing. I, I think the other thing too is from a future direction standpoint, we're in this constant battle with fad diets and either refuting or supporting some of the things that are being claimed out there. And, and I think that that's been an area that we've really seen growth and development in and that I hope continues to move forward as we start to kind of parse through um, some more of the marketing and hype rather than the actual science behind some of these things. And I think moving forward, I could definitely see that being the case and starting to take into consideration some of the individual effects that you're going to see at the, at the person level rather than the group level when we start looking at it from an application and, and analysis standpoint.
1: That's really interesting, especially when you start to talk about application and nutritional strategies for optimization. With your athletes and the individuals that you train in and the pro teams, what are the foundational protocols that you put into place or just the the good baseline foundational strategies that you utilize?
0: Yeah, that's actually a great question. And I'm going to make it really easy. Rule number one is eat. We work with a lot of female athletes. And I believe that Calories have gotten a really bad name. And one of the first things that we teach the athletes at both the college, well, hell, we do this with, with youth athletes as well, college and professional level is that food is fuel. And to approach it that way, it's sort of that notion that athletes don't diet and exercise, they eat and train. And when we take that approach with them, we try to, you know, it's amazing to me, even at the college level. We're at a big university, I mean, this is a division one, big ten school. And it's interesting how little dietary information a lot of these athletes come to us with and, and basics, things we probably take for granted in terms of what's a protein, what's a carbohydrate, what's a fat. And so to tell you the truth, some of the original stuff that, you know, the initial things that we work on is very much just basic education to help them identify what foods do and what sort of groupings they fall into and also educating them on energy requirements. I mean, we're lucky with some of the data that we have from the monitoring that we use with heart rate, GPS and things like that. And we can derive calorie expenditure during a game, during a practice. You know, we have some on the women's soccer side, they're expending in excess of 2000 calories a game. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) So, So when we do this, being able to educate them on, Hey, you need to eat. So It's really this notion of fueling for the work necessary and feeding the machine. You don't want to be running on empty. You you don't want just enough to get you there. It's really this notion of a constant repair and replenishment strategy, because I think, you know, it's funny. You look at some of the studies that have come out on protein intake and timing, and, you know, you only need this amount and, and all these things and they'll have the subjects training three, maybe four days a week. Well, with our athletes, they're training five to seven days a week and sometimes twice a day. So we might be looking at in excess of 10 to 14 sessions of training. So actually timing becomes a really critical part of what we do in order to just get enough food in them as well, well as them sort of proper habits. But, but I think that notion of eating and feeding the machine and, and that calories aren't the bad guy, that comes first and foremost. And then the finer points about the, the selection of foods and, and the timing of foods, that comes next teaching them what what's better quality from the standpoint of what's going to make them feel good. You know, and I will say one interesting thing working with with an athlete is when you fix their diet as well as some of their recovery strategies, they quickly realize that they've been existing in a world where they were tired, but they just thought that was a natural product of their training. They're like, "Wow, this is just how I'm supposed to feel." And all of a sudden when they feel good, it's a completely different revelation and it's interesting to watch psychologically and physically how they respond to that
1: and when you dose just as an example for our listeners when you dose their there's a lot of discussion on whether you do it on lean body mass whether you do on meal to meal distribution it's important to differentiate that the people that you're talking about are athletes versus say someone who is a non-athletic or maybe a recreational athlete and their requirements
0: yeah and i think you know for us in terms of establishing the quantities that we try to get after in terms of you know grams of protein per kilogram and carbohydrate replenishment post-workout and things like that we we basically to, to be honest we base it on just on just mass it's not necessarily just lean body mass i think that starts to get a bit tricky for people and the math gets a bit complicated and while we could argue that maybe basing it on lean mass would be preferential from the standpoint of sheer accuracy to be honest, you're kind of ballparking with numbers anyway, so it's a question of exactly how precise you need to get. If you're not measuring every fine point of you took in exactly 33 grams, you right. know things like that. So, so I worry a little less about that, and I think too for the more average individual. And what I mean by that is, you know, sort of the, the non-athlete. It doesn't mean they're not athletic, but sort of the non-athlete or those looking to lose body fat and things like that. We have to be very careful not to overcomplicate things for them because then it gets really hard to follow for a lot of people. Now, some people like as much precision as possible, right? They're the baker. They want the very specific measurements. They want to know, you know, how much of this do I eat exactly? Do I need to weigh it and things like that? And then you get those that are more the cook you know, that kind of throw some ingredients together and they want some rough guidelines. And I think understanding that personality is an important part to getting them the right message.
1: Yeah, you're totally right. That's exactly how it is with my patients and and my athletes. In terms of endocrinological experiences with these people, do you find that the women tend to have metabolic dysregulation with thyroid? You I know, mean, you hear a lot about elevated levels of reverse T3 or menstrual cycle irregularities. Do your athletes, when they're feeding correctly, do you find that they have those issues as much?
0: No, not as much. I actually think that's probably one big thing we've been a little bit more successful in the last couple of years. And actually this past season, we were able to implement a little more strategic sport nutrition intervention with them. And what was interesting is look, it's a heavy training load for some of them. And where our big challenge comes in is in preseason because it's so incredibly metabolically demanding because of its short duration, two weeks, but massive overload. So sort of this acute to chronic workload really gets skewed. But what we've noticed is over the seasons, we get changes in a number of nutritional biomarkers that are not favorable, including decreases in iron, decreases in omega threes, drops in, in vitamin D, you know, so, you know, take your pick. It's not been ideal. And while We weren't able to fully prevent that. We did mitigate it to a great degree when you have a little more systematic approach to the nutritional feeding schedule, as well as the the guidance that you give them. And so, for example, there's been previous seasons where as a team, we'd see as much as a 50% drop in iron over the course of the season in the female athlete. Why is
1: that happening? Well,
0: we, we think there's a few reasons that it work here. And so if you match it onto the other hormonal markers, including cortisol, not a hormonal marker, biochemical marker, when you look at what happens with estradiol, when you look at what happens with IGF-1 growth hormone and things like that, as well as T3 and T4, I think what you're getting is such a tremendous metabolic response that the system has a hard time assimilating the quantity of nutrient that you would need. And I think in some ways because of the needs of an athlete from an oxygen carrying capacity standpoint, from a metabolic, you know, a system turnover and repair issue in many ways, they just, they need more dietary intake. And a lot of people never quite teach them, you know, they'd be like, Oh, you know, I, I eat a lot of spinach. And you're like, well, are you eating vitamin C with that too, to help with absorption? And so there's a lot of little, little parts that can make a big difference to get left out. And I think those are the things that we've tried to, to get at, but it's also just an issue of, trying to keep them out of extreme deprivation as much as possible and sort of keep that energy availability in a more acceptable range to be able to deal with the consequences of their training. And and I think that what we've come to realize, and I think where our, our biomarker measurements have become really useful for us is we've always done a lot with training load you know, so we can track what they're doing in training. We, we've got heart rate data, we've got GPS data, so we've got distances, speeds, we've got time spent in different heart rate zones, but, but here's the thing, that's two, two and a half hours of the day, What we're realizing, especially when you work with a college athlete, is that gives you another 21 to 22 hours in a day for for a lot of other stuff to happen. And now you put them in high heat and humidity in August and you throw travel into the schedule and you throw in the fact that you've got some players living away from home for the first time, taking classes at the college level, integrating with teammates, dealing with new coaches, different demands, competition and training, real game scenarios. There is a lot of other stressors that go on beyond just training. And so the training load has been a really, really useful tool for us to have the snapshot of what their physical expenditure is. The biomarkers have been very useful to give us an overall sense of stress. You know, and that ultimately is what contributes to overreaching and overtraining. It's not just that single exercise or training bout. It's really the accumulated parts that go along with that, 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 necessitate, you know, more optimized recovery in terms of sleep, in terms of nutrition and all those different things. So those are some of the changes that we've seen. And I will say this, we're very fortunate we're able to track these players along both the males and the females. And I will tell you that one, interestingly enough with a lot of our data analysis, we've got a couple manuscripts that are in the process right now on this. The game is remarkably similar between males and females. If you set it as a relative intensity. Wow, that's amazing. It is. And, and they actually, believe it or not, they cover similar distances, the differences in how those are covered. So, you know, different speed zones and stuff. So not surprising, different top speeds and different power outputs. But what's interesting is from a hormonal and biochemical standpoint they don't respond the same way and the female athlete certainly has some unique response patterns and this is why we got into this because most of our data and most of our recommendations for these athletes are based on studies that were done in males and we're looking at this going you know what it's not the same thing you know and i know for us that seems like it should be a no-brainer But the reality is from an evidence-based approach standpoint, these are fairly new markers that we're able to look at and go, hey, the men and the women are not responding the same despite similar relative demands. There's more we have to pay attention to here.
1: And which markers? And is this how Blueprint Athlete was born?
0: Yeah, and so first the markers. We technically run panels of of a little over 100 markers, but there's a bucket that we tend to rely on. And actually what we're doing is kind of putting these markers into their own buckets in terms of what they represent. But certainly with the females, some of the, some of the unique changes that we've seen in them that we haven't seen consistently in the males are the hematological markers, you know, especially related to anything revolving around iron, iron processing and iron assimilation. When we look at ferritin, when we look at iron, when we look at percent saturation, it's different in the females. We even see it with hematocrit as well we see tend to have higher cortisol in the females, though some of that is influenced by oral contraceptives. But even after controlling for that, the female athlete tends to have a higher circulating cortisol and it changes differentially. What's really cool is from a repair process standpoint, females do respond with larger growth hormone patterns, amplitudes throughout the season. So that's helping a little bit as well. But even in terms of what we see with with creatin kinase, when you start to standardize it for body mass and muscle mass involved, the timing of when breakdown starts to occur. And, and I would say that, you know, not only are we seeing some markers with different magnitude of response, but many of them have different time course of response in terms of when in the season we start to see, you know, up downturn, you know, whatever it is. So, you know, we're starting to get at some of these unique patterns and it's nice having worked with some of these athletes for quite a while now, because we're really able to track these teams over time. And, and fortunately, especially on the women's side, we're dealing with a very successful program. You're talking about a team who's made the final four in the last couple of years, who's perennially ranked in the top 20, the most successful program at Rutgers right now. So they're not bad. I mean, this is a good group. We've had a lot of players go pro. And so we're really looking at, at a very high level group overall, and we're still seeing these things occur.
1: That's amazing. Well, congratulations. I mean, I'm sure that's in a large part due to you implementing the science, you know?
0: I'll tell you what, though, (laughs) if you want to look like a good sports scientist or strength coach, work with great athletes. That's the that's the reality is, uh, you know, as as much as we need to be very careful how much credit we take for that, because at the end of the day, it really comes down to being fortunate enough to work with coaches and athletes that believe in what they're doing, buy into it. It makes our job a lot easier and it's not an overnight success story. It's a process. I mean, don't get me wrong. As soon as we implemented some of these things, we had tremendous success, especially with, with reducing injuries, but the real long-term success, which to me is always harder. It's, it's one thing to, to get to the top. It's another way, another thing to stay there. And um, massive credit to who we work with, because we we do what we can. But at the end of the day, it's about their willingness to really buy in and believe in what we're doing and see the result. So while I will take a little bit of credit for it, because I know that we've had an impact on them, they also make us look really good.
1: That's amazing. I'm sure they're going to be happy to hear that, you
0: know. Oh, they probably won't listen to this. They were tired of listening to me. <laughs>
1: Before we move on from the biomarkers, just out of curiosity, from ferritin, sure. where do they typically start? Where do
0: you like to see an optimal ferritin level? So you know what? So I'm actually glad you just asked that question, this idea of optimal level. So I think one of the challenges I face, and not just me, but colleagues as well, especially when we deal with some, with some physicians, is they'll look at this and be like, oh, that's in normal range. They're fine. They're not low. Well, here's the problem. Normal range is not necessarily ideal for an athlete. You know, and I can give you an example. There's a couple of male players that we've worked with whose testosterone still fell in a normal range, but it decreased by almost 100%. Wow. So you're looking at it going, yeah, that's normal range, but that's not good. So I'll tell you what, what I've learned that I appreciate more and more because one of the things that got me into exercise endocrinology for graduate school was my interest in how complex the system is. And I think sometimes we make these huge mistakes of trying, trying to boil it down to, to one or two markers that tell you everything you need to know. And that's just, it's not feasible. It's not possible to do. Even when you just look at something as simple as regulating blood glucose and looking at your regulatory and counter-regulatory hormones, it, it's just a lot more complicated than that. But what I'm finding more and more is that while absolute levels are certainly important, especially when we have some data on athletes and where they might fall, we know that, for example, creatin kinase levels are typically going to be much higher in an athlete because of their training status and, and recent training endeavors and things like that. So we, we kind of go with that. What, what I'm really, really starting to become more and more interested in is change. So looking at what happens from one time point to the next time point to the next time point and really starting to map the individual responses as well as the team responses under these different scenarios and different training loads. So I'm a little bit hesitant and I've seen some companies out there that do this. Oh, the optimal range for an athlete is, you know, other than maybe vitamin D and a couple other things, that's a hard thing to pinpoint because like take hormones, for example, we could say take, take testosterone. That's really hard to put in an optimal range without accounting for receptor sensitivity, uh, without accounting for free versus total, without accounting for what's bound to albumin or sex hormone binding globulin. You know, there's too many other things that go on that I think we ignore. So to me actually, and I know it's a (laughs) roundabout way to answer your question is we don't necessarily just look at what's the ideal level, but it's really what's the relative change for that athlete as well. And if we see things on the low end, how do we bring them up and sustain them at a level we know to be more physiologically functional?
1: That's really interesting, especially with the, I mean, that's a really, really good perspective. And I'm curious as to the athletes that you see, so with the training stress and maybe perhaps this athlete's testosterone dropped 100 points, what do you do to then augment that for kind of his particular situation? Do you have him sleeping? Do you have him pull back? Is that when you decide to pull back in terms of training volume or other additional stressors? I mean, what do you do
0: in that position? That's an awesome question. And I think this is where some people lose the force for the trees and they see this marker change and they immediately go to, we need to do this, right? Well, here's the thing. There's multiple causes for why that could occur. And this is why I am a fan of monitoring our athletes in different ways. And in many ways, some of these changes we see initiate a really good discussion. So there's an educational opportunity here for the coach and the athlete. In terms of why we think we're seeing these changes and getting at, you know, if we've seen, for example, performance during training and games, if, we, if we're starting to consistently see it drop in terms of number of sprints performed, time spent in high, you know, in high speed running, distances covered, if we start to see it being harder and harder for them to bring their heart rate down during breaks in the action or during breaks during practice and things like that, you know, this is starting to tip us off that we've got a pretty chronic activation of the system. And that we're starting to see these decrements in in overall effect. And I will say, while we do rely on the athlete's perception, certainly it's an important part of this, you know, how are you feeling? The one thing that people need to realize is athletes lie, right? They don't want to admit something's hard and they certainly don't want somebody to pull them because they want to play. And so in some ways, using objective measures is one of the most critical parts to starting an honest conversation because it's one of those where you'll often get, oh, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Really? Okay, so here's what I'm seeing okay, so I am a little tired. Okay, well, let's get at that. You know, what have your days been like? Well, I had a paper due and I stayed up late and you know, how's your, how's your diet? And well, it's been pretty good except for those, you know, four meals I skipped, you know, things like that, where you start to identify where their contributors are. And then we can back up from that and start to apply some very realistic, from my point of view, some common sense strategies to try to help them with recovery. But that being said, there are times where they just need to rest. And I think one of my favorite stories this is a couple seasons ago. It was actually during our final four run. So we had two players who really were critical for us as goal scorers. So they played up top. And through the biomarker tracking, we were starting to see this consistent climb in cortisol, a drop in iron, elevated values of their catecholamines, growth hormone was falling, things like that. And so it was interesting because... Their performance on the field was really starting to reflect this. So we had a conversation with the head coach. And in my opinion, Mike O'Neill is one of the best head coaches I've ever worked with in terms of his willingness to do what's best for his players and being willing to adapt to sports science and admit he doesn't understand all of it. But that's why he has people around him that know this stuff. So basically, the the, the conversation was, look, I know we need him for games. But will you trade me practice? And so because of the years of trust that we built with them, you know, his response was, you know, how long are we looking at? I said, let's try two weeks where we play them in the games. But basically practice is is mostly active recovery stuff. It's it's some movement patterns. It's dynamic warmups, But really no physiological load to a great degree. Let's start to repair them. And this is around midseason. First weekend that we started this process, we started it on a Monday. They had games that Saturday and Sunday. Both of them went out and scored multiple goals. Wow. So, so the, the, after the game, Mike comes up and he looks at me straight-faced and goes, so who else do we need to rest? And so wow. it, was, it was one of those moments where you realize that there's a, at some point you play a lot of soccer. And we've been going and August was hard and we get through September and we're in league play. And, and if you understand the needs of the team and you'd be realistic about the fact that, look, players got to play, you know, and if we can keep them healthy on the on the playing pitch, then there's other places we can pull from when needed. I don't want to undertrain these guys either. That's an equally bad training error is not training them enough. But but at the same time, there are players that if you track them and you have these change data on them over time, you can start to see patterns in performance and times where, you know what, we need to rest, eat and sleep. Let's try that. And, you know, we've been fortunate with those results. But I think that importantly, the part that often gets lost by that when um, when a sports scientist relays this to a coach, you also have to address it with the player so that they understand they're not being punished and that this is what's best for their performance. And what's funny, because I've had a lot of this where people are like, oh, they're not going to like this. You know, I hope not because they're going to want to play, but I'll tell you what, they always buy in and understand because we take the time to explain it to them. And I think if you do that, and this is the same thing, if you, even if you're not working with athletes, if you're working with a client, why am I doing this? Well, you know what? Here's the deal. And, and the way I look at it, if you can't explain it to them in a way that they understand, that's on you. So now you got to step back and go, okay, what am I not doing well enough to help them understand this? And so that's how I've worked with coaches as well Is at the end of the day, they don't all have a degree in exercise science or kinesiology. So it's my job to put what we do into terms that actually mean something to them so that they understand and appreciate the approach that we're trying to take as much as anything else.
1: So interesting. So you get their buy-in and then they sleep and they rest in terms of supplementation. Are there any particular, you know, cause there's so much growth science out there. Yeah, I know. And, um, you know, and and I know that that's kind of your mission right now is really cleaning up the science and giving good evidence-based direction. Are there certain supplementation that one, you put all your athletes on or, and two are also showing more promise?
0: Yeah, we have a bit of a challenge, especially when we're dealing with the NCAA in terms of things that you, you can and can't give them. And you know what's funny is I'm finding out more and more. There's a lot of physicians and athletic trainers that think things are banned when in fact what they are is they're just restricted in terms of you can't give it to the athlete, but they can take it. And so there's there needs to be a little better education process on that. But for me, you know, especially with the sports we typically deal with protein. From the standpoint of repair and and recovery, protein is an important part of what we do, and we at least try to emphasize it around their training so we make sure they're getting something in them to start the repair process before the next scheduled training they have. And then as well at night to try to, you know, facilitate the repair process overnight. I think there's been some great work that Mike Ormsby and Luke Van Loon have done in that area in particular. Tons of respect for for what they've accomplished in that field. But I think, too, that for me, creatine is way, way up there and not just for performance benefits, but also what it can do cognitively and some of the interesting stuff that's coming out on its potential role in either preventing TBI or helping with recovery from TBI. And given what we see with, you know, soccer, for example, football and concussions, in many ways, it starts to become a, uh, (laughs) I guess, pun intended, no brainer to start to incorporate this into more of what they do, including what it does for performance and recovery Fish oils, I, I think omega-3s are a critical part of, of often what we're looking at. Everything, you know, including their anti-inflammatory properties, but even some of the interesting work that's been done that suggests that there may be a role in muscle repair. But again, even from a cognitive standpoint, there's equally good, if not even better evidence on the role of omega-3s in recovery from concussion and TBI as there is even as for, for creatine. And then I think that if I had to kind of pick the next level of, of what would be in my sort of standard stable Of things that I highly recommend for performance, it would be caffeine. You know, in certain caffeine derivatives, we're starting to do some work with tiocrine and dynamine as well as sort of offshoots of caffeine with maybe less habituation and longer sustained action. But still, caffeine has a pretty darn good track record in terms of what it can do to fuel performance. We actually just finished a study that we're writing up now. And in the caffeine condition, we actually, we did a simulated soccer game on the treadmill. So we actually broke it down by GPS and heart rate zones. And and then split it up so basically the players ran two 45 minute halves and then we took them to added time so it's like you're going into into overtime now and it was a run to exhaustion and what was interesting was in the caffeine condition and the caffeine plus theacrine conditions where we combined them they had anywhere from a 20 to 30% improvement in time to exhaustion you know which in an added time scenario is pretty significant wow. for your ability to sustain high speed running and then I think probably my next tier from there would be there's some really cool work that that Andy Jones and others are doing with beetroot that shows some real promise. And then as well as, you know, beta alanine, I'm probably a little less, a little less enthused with beta alanine than I used to be not saying it doesn't work. It's just that. I find the magnitude of effect to be a little smaller and and a little more specific when it comes to certain distances. But that being said, if you're sort of taking care of all the other stuff, you know, the things that we know work really well, then I think that beta alanine could be a really nice addition to that. It might not be the first thing I start with. But I think, from a buffering standpoint, and in conjunction with other things, those would probably be my grade A list. If I had to think about the things that that fall into sort of a top or even second tier of what I would use w- with the athletes. Other than that, there's not a whole lot that I find to be remarkably appealing. We've done some work with a, a black tea extract that was just purchased by a company, we have a patent on it, but we found some interesting effects for recovery and reductions in delayed onset muscle soreness. So I do think there's some other things out there that that are starting to show some promise. But I think you know if I were to look at my go-tos, the protein, the creatine, the caffeine, the omega-3s, those are my top tier. And then beetroot or nitrates and the beta alanine would probably be my next level.
3: And then on a movement and a strength training level, what kind of stuff do you guys do to help optimize the athlete's
0: performance? All of it. <laughs> you know, it's one of those where <laughs> we, we try, you know, you don't want to ignore the systems in general. And so, you know, we do, interestingly, we took over the resistance training for uh, the strength training for um, women's soccer this year. They now train at our center, which is actually really cool. And it's nice to have a very cohesive grouping to be able to get the information where it needs to be and get the information that we need. But I am a huge fan of resistance training for athletes, not only to improve performance, but also to help reduce the risk of injury. Look, you will never prevent injury. And any systems or any little marketing gimmicks that say how it'll prevent injury are full of crap. You can't prevent it, but you can reduce the risk. And that's ultimately our goal. You know, I will say this, that even just one of my favorite stories from working with women's soccer has been in the first year that we started working with them. The reason that they had called us to try to help is they had five times the national average for ACL injuries over a two year span. They had nine nine knee ligament injuries in two years. And so we made some basic changes to periodization, to a systematic testing program, to monitoring training load, as well as strength training. And not only did we improve vertical jump by over two inches over about a four-month span, which for high-level athletes is pretty darn good, but more importantly, reduced injuries by over 70%. And if you can keep the athlete on the field, you're going to win a lot more games.
3: That's incredible. you are talking about testing systems. Like, What, what are some of go-tos?
0: So for us, there's a lot of things we could do, but just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. And so one of the balancing acts that we have, and and we are fortunate, we just had our fifth annual human performance conference here this past weekend. And AJ Nibel from the Jacksonville Jaguars was up. He's their director of performance for them. He was with the Falcons before that. And there's a lot of different tests they use with them. But here's the thing for those athletes, that's their full-time job too. When we're working with college athletes, And we have restricted times because of compliance because of number of hours they can spend in a week training or working as team activities we have to be a bit selective in what we do so what our go-to's have traditionally been for them is looking at the major contributors to performance in that particular sport so in that case we look at aerobic capacity so we'll do vo2 max and then along the way we can get ventilatory threshold on them we do body composition partly because we don't want them carrying a whole lot of extra weight in terms of fat because of what it can do to injury risk with especially knees and and hips and ankles, but also to make sure they're not losing muscle during the season. That's something that we can then have a significant impact on. And then finally vertical jump. And so looking at power this past year, we've also been able to directly get their strength values. So we'll do bench press, squat and deadlift and we do a three rep max with them. Not really a need in that group to do a true one rep max. You know, we're not, we're not training powerlifters. We're training athletes. And that sounded bad. Not that powerlifters aren't athletes. Not what I meant. <laughs> but I think what it is, is people need to remember that when you're working with things outside of Olympic lifting and powerlifting, that is their sport, right? When you're working with, with, with other field-based team sports, even swimming, things like that, You're using the lifting to help them improve their performance in what is actually their sport. So we have to be smart about how we integrate that. And so our, you know, our go-tos from a testing have been that plus then adding in the biomarkers over the last few years from a monitoring strategy. But with the performance markers, we measure those four times a year. And so we'll get them when they report for preseason camp in August. We get them again at the very end of the season, which actually for me is the single most important time point because I want to know why we ended the way we did. In other words, where were we fitness wise when we either won or lost whatever that last game was. And then we get them when they come back from winter break and we get them at the end of their spring season before they head off for the summer. So we know where they at minimum should be coming in when they come back in August. And so there's a, there's a level of accountability that we create that way, both for them and for us in terms of making sure that we assess what we're doing and that it's working. And I think it just keeps us progressing because then our real metric is if we have them over four years for as, for as a college athlete, do they leave better than they came in? Because if they don't, we didn't do something right along the way. And so those are the things that we try to use to guide the principles that we use in their training, their nutrition, and, their, and the other training recommendations.
3: Nice. I want to circle back to body composition measurements. Sure. I know a lot of people can get really obsessed with numbers, <laughs> starting starting to hit a certain body fat percentage. There is even a gym in New York called S10 to encourage 10% body fat. Uh, Names behind it. And I'm curious, do these numbers matter? Is it just more of an assessment tool? What are your thoughts?
0: So do they matter? Yeah, they matter. You know, they matter for a variety of reasons and even the absolute numbers matter to some degree. When you start to look at what it could mean for optimizing performance obviously if the numbers are too low when we look at, at body fat in terms of percentage there's potential hormonal and performance consequences to that you know we can start dealing with female athlete triad amenorrhea whatever but then we also have the high end where if you have an athlete who maybe is coming back from injury and they, they were eating the way they did when they were training and they put on some body fat, you know, that keys us in on maybe some things we need to focus on in the off season for them. But, but importantly, especially for certain sports where there's an impact factor and things like that, if they are carrying higher levels of body fat, that, that is extra weight coming down on them and things that, that we have to be concerned at least to some degree from a mechanical standpoint but that being said i don't get too caught up in those things if nothing else we start to use kind of ranges of what we might want to target and you understand that there's different body shapes and sizes and and somebody could be a great athlete a great soccer player a great football player and you know have higher than what we would think would be ideal body fat but where i find it very useful as i mentioned before is from a tracking strategy standpoint. So if somebody tells us they're doing all the things that we're asking them to do, and you know they're, they're, they're eating the right way and all this stuff, and, and, and body fat keeps going up, we gotta take a look at what's happening. Well, okay, so, oh, you forgot to tell us you're drinking a lot of alcohol, great, okay, so we need to account for that. But the flip side too is, we also wanna make sure they're not breaking down. So if we start to see losses in muscle mass, these are flags for us to take a closer look and see how it changes over time and make sure that we're doing the right things. And so, again, it becomes a bit of an educational tool for the athletes. But like I said, it's important, but it's not that I want to get caught up on one number. I think it's what, what you look at in terms of the change or even maintenance over time to allow us to do certain things. And, you know, like we work with athletes in weight category sports as well, boxing, MMA, things like that. And so actually monitoring their body composition is very important for us because it helps us understand what the weight cut can look like. You know, how much can we drop? What can we expect from a water weight pull, you know, and things like that. And at the same time, if you've got a weight category athlete and you've got to make sure you don't put on too much mass because they wind up out of their weight class or it gets really hard to lose. Again, these are monitoring tools. So while the absolute numbers matter, the relative information we get from it, I think is probably how we use it most effectively.
3: Do you find in working with your athletes that there's this, a little bit of a disconnect of caring about how they look from an aesthetic perspective
0: how are they performing oh oh my god yes oh it is an ongoing battle so my wife michelle is their is the the women's soccer strength coach and sport nutritionist and i give her credit because she was a a figure competitor so she was an ifbb pro as well as now an endurance athlete she's run 30 something marathons but anyway the point of that is one of the things i love that she works with with these girls is she'll basically explain to them i know you want to look good in your jeans on friday night but i'll tell you what I will never do anything to jeopardize all of your goals. We're going to incorporate these all together, but you need to give me an honest effort because one of the things that we try to stress in here is that form follows function. And so if you train like an athlete, if you eat like an athlete, you're going to look like an athlete. And so, yes, there is that battle, you know, and it's interesting because I wouldn't restrict that to athletes though. I think even general population and some of the things we do in here with weight loss studies and things like that is, there is such this unfounded fear of getting too big from lifting. And it's just not that easy. I've been trying. It's not that easy. You know, I mean, you got to work hard. But it's one of those things where this is in some ways where the body composition becomes a really useful educational tool. Because it's funny. I'll give you a story from this spring. We had a lot of the girls on the team being like, I'm getting too big. I feel like I'm getting too big. I'm like, cool. Okay, let's let's go ahead and do body comp. Hey, look at that. You gained one pound of muscle and lost a pound of fat. So you know what? You've gotten no bigger. I'm like, oh, I feel like it. So I, okay, tell you what, you need to perform. Let's do like, I feel like it's making me slower. So, you know, what we did, we went out and ran 40s. So we did their 40 testing. Oh yeah, by the way, that's the other test that we do with them is speed testing. So anyway, from August to a month ago, as a team, they shaved six tenths of a second off their 40 time. So they feel like they're getting bigger. The data says they're not. They feel like they're getting slower. The data says they're getting faster and all of a sudden they run out of arguments. And what it is, is they just don't want to lift. (laughs) So you, you you help them start to understand where it's positively impacted their performance. And then there tends to be a little better buying, but yes, absolutely. When you're dealing with the athletes, there is certainly an aesthetic concern. And I find that the sooner you acknowledge that, help educate on it and don't dismiss it, but take it into account with everything else you're doing. It's easier to get them to follow along.
1: Do you find that a lot of them come in with more of the trendy diets and say they want to try a ketogenic diet or
0: a vegan diet, things of that nature. Do you, are you finding that a lot? You know, a little bit, but it's funny. I've just found in general that most of them don't know anything about diet periods. So they don't even know about the fad diets, but you know, what's funny about asking that question. I did some stuff with special operations last year for the military for SOCOM, and we had an operator panel there. And so it was reflective of, you know, the SEALs, MARSOC, the Rangers, a guy from Delta, things like that. But but anyway, my point is they were talking about the diet issue came up, right, because it was a sport nutrition summit. And a lot of them are like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, you know, we come back from deployment. You know, then we got kind of these desk jobs where I was active. Then we got to go out on deployment. So, you know, I'm looking at myself going, man, I got to lose some weight and this, that. So they're not thinking performance. They're thinking, I got to lose some weight because I don't want to look bad because I put on too much fat. So what they do is they'll start a ketogenic diet. And it turns out they've never been educated on what that can do to their, their performance in some very negative ways. And so what's happening is even when you're talking about somebody who quite literally their job is life or death there's an educational process that has to go on there where they catch these trendy diets and these fads and things they read about and, you know, and this and that. And it is a challenge. I will say this. One of the reasons I'm not overly active on social media, but I'm active. But one of the reasons I, I decided to go ahead and do that is in some ways the internet is the worst thing that's ever happened to quality information. It's sad because it's such a good way to be able to give and get good information. But anybody with a keyboard suddenly thinks they're an expert in this area. I heard a woman talk one time about she had read a book on testosterone therapy and all of a sudden she's some expert endocrinologist. And and it was really funny because I agreed. I've never been in this scenario where I'm listening to it going, I agree with what your outcome is that you're arguing for in terms of the potential utility for testosterone replacement therapy, why we do have to be concerned with these things, blah, blah. But the entire rationale for getting to that point was so highly flawed. It wasn't even funny. And I'm sitting there going, oh, wow, this is what's out there. So, yes, we do deal with some of the fad diets and it's at levels you wouldn't even expect it to come from. I know with the pro teams I've worked with, that was even more of a problem than I've seen with the college athlete. But, yeah, it's an issue not going away anytime soon. I
1: think people are going to really enjoy this whole talk because it touches on so many different
0: things that I think are misrepresented and kind of confusing this is some confusing stuff it really can be especially when you get like multiple input sources it's hard well
1: and i think you bring up a really good point it's really important to vet your sources right where was this nutritionist trained or where is this information coming from and i think the quality of the information is really valuable and obviously in academics you know everyone vets their sources yeah so what's next
0: for you What's next for me? So we have quite a few things going on. We actually just got a grant from the Horizon Foundation. We're actually going to do a skills-based intervention in some local high schools and look at development of athleticism and skills using an athlete mentor model, trying to kind of get back to this idea of instead of addressing obese adolescents, address all of them so they don't become obese adults. So we're trying to basically teach them physical competence using sort of a long-term athlete development model. The next strategy, we, we do have a really cool partnership a collaborative partnership on the research side with Quest Diagnostics and Blueprint for Athletes. As a matter of fact, when we signed that this year, our testing facility as part of the center now is the Quest Diagnostics Sports Science Lab at Rutgers University. And so our access to biomarker measurements and starting to fine-tune what's moving the needle and what can actually be changed through intervention is what the next steps are for us. We may actually start doing some work, fairly large-scale study with the American Ballet Theater I'm looking at this in artist-athletes. But then also continuing the work we're doing with, with with female sports in terms of women's soccer and looking at this notion of low energy availability and reds and comparing that to what's going on in males as well and looking at whether or not caloric feedings or whether it's a macronutrient specific response to try to rectify some of the low energy that might be going on and what's happening with the hormonal responses to that. So those are some ongoing things that we have cooking and we're doing another study that we have IRB approval for just haven't started data collection yet, where we're actually using caffeine and then uh, a caffeine combination along with dynamine. And what we're doing is a mentally fatiguing protocol in military and law enforcement. And then what we're doing is a, a live targeting exercise to look at whether or not vigilance can be sustained with some of these supplements as well. So those are, those are sort of the, some of the, the bigger things we have going on. We have a few smaller studies going on, and we're continuing to wrap up data collection on a, um, an intervention we're doing with adolescent cancer survivors. So we've actually designed an online app for them. It's been going on for about a year, and we've got some pretty cool data on physical and psychological changes in this group that are recovering from their cancer itself.
1: That's, that's incredible. Well, our listeners can't wait to hear about it. You'll have to have you back
0: to discuss something. Yeah, would I love to. I think this is great that you guys are doing this. I appreciate that you're trying to get the information out there. It's not an easy task. And Gabrielle, I've known you for a while. And, you know, anytime you guys need anything. And, and again, you know, both of you are always welcome down at the center to come see what we're doing down here, too.
1: Well, you're very generous and we'd love to. Yeah, absolutely.
2: That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? We have a great contest for you guys to share the word about muscle medicine. We have a signed copy of Brenda Bouchard's high performance habits, foods that fit your macros ebook by Holly Baxter, Kathy Dooley's immaculate dissection DVDs, five of my favorite health and wellness books, a 60 minute higher dose, which the infrared sauna place, a session for two people a Mobot mobility water bottle so you can foam roll and hydrate wherever you are, and a roll of rock tape and rock floss to get your mobility and stability in all the right places. How do you get these prizes? Go to Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Hit subscribe at the top. Give us a five-star review if you love what we're doing, and then head over to bit.ly slash muscle med, B-I-T dot l y slash muscle med send us your name your email hit submit and then you're entered share muscle medicine with your friends to increase your chances of winning thank you so much from the bottom of my heart